Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate squash player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average squash player is I've also made squash my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it, and if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Squash Radio listeners, we've got some big news to share. We are thrilled to announce that Squash Radio has its first ever sponsor. Squash Radio has been a way to engage the squash community by sharing some great stories of the people involved in the sport. So to have a sponsor, partner, come in and support this initiative, and who is just excited to bring these stories to you all, is truly an honor. We will be sharing more about their journey, and you might just see their products at a squash court near you. More to come. What about this? This call is being recorded. For some quick background on our guests in this episode, here's a quick overview. Chanel Erasmus is a true squash fanatic who is cultivating the next wave of fans both on court and from behind a microphone. Chanel wears many hats in the community and is definitely making her mark in the squash world. From her accent, you'll quickly learn Chanel is a South African native, but the United States has been her home since making the decision to follow her passion and play squash in college. While at Trinity College, Chanel earned the rare distinction of being a multi-sport varsity athlete in field hockey, crew, and of course, squash, helping their team win national championships along the way. After graduation, Pottstown, Pennsylvania was next, where Chanel pulls double duty as the director of squash and donor relations officer at the Hill School. Chanel's energy is seemingly boundless as, beyond her school duties, works on major squash events around the country at the professional level, like the NetSuite Open and the Tournament of Champions, as well as national championships. In these realms, her skills are showcased both behind the scenes or front and center as the MC or commentator for the broadcast. Chanel credits the Squash Network for her school and career developments, both by embracing and being thankful for the opportunities she's earned. So she's a huge advocate on the importance of positive and continued connection within the sport. We hope you enjoy learning more about this great player, coach, and ambassador who is making her mission to give back to the sport. We hope you enjoy the show. 
Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor Malley, and we're very excited to have another episode for you today. And the guest is Chanel Erasmus, calling in today from Pottstown, Pennsylvania, but originally from South Africa. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Connor. I'm so excited to be here. I'd like to start off, if you're meeting someone at a cocktail party, which pre-COVID used to happen, (laughs) what's the short version of introducing yourself? You know, I, I think it'd be, I'm Chanel, I'm uh, from South Africa, a squash fanatic, both coaching and playing, just love the game so much, uh, a sports fan in the general sense, and uh, a little bit of a creative side as well. So that's my go-to like 20 second elevator speech, I would say. I, I like it. I feel like I need to practice mine because that was pretty well done. Now, <laughs> let's just say we're actually taking a little bit more time to get to know you and I know that you wear like many people in squash world, you wear a lot of hats. I sure do. So let's just quickly go through the variety of hats that you have. And what we're going to spend some time is going there and and also seeing how you get into those roles. But list out all the hats that you do wear. Please feel free to list them all. Yeah, first and foremost, I'm the director of squash at the Hill School. And part of that role is acting as head coach for both the boys varsity team and the girls varsity teams. And then obviously overseeing the entire program. We've been trying to get a community program up and running. I coach the local middle school as well in the area, the Wincroft School. So that's just, that's part of the job, I would say. That's what pays my bills. And then I also work for US Squash where I am the lead commentator along with Richard Millman for most of U.S. Nationals, the College Nationals, Individual Championships, U.S. Junior Open is where I I would say that's my side gig. And then I've also done some emceeing at the Tournament of Champions. I filled in for Will Carlin for two sessions, and that was a great honor. And then I do a lot of event work with Squash Engine. So John Nemec's team, I've been to, obviously, the Tournament of Champions. I've worked at the Tournament of Champions for the last three or four years. And then also at the NetSuite Open in San Francisco last year was my first event there with that team. And then I've coached the U.S. Junior National team at the British Junior Open, as well as working at the National Academy. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lot of squash. And you mentioned your role at Squash Engine. What have you done there besides what we might see on the mic or either in front of the crowds or commentating? Yeah, it started, I think it was Wow, this a couple of years ago, I was an assistant to one of the main people for the event and I would help control the facility and I would help people find their seats. I would manage the volunteers, the ushers, get everyone ticketed and banded and moving into the, obviously the beautiful Grand Central terminal that we use is a pretty small space. And so there's not much room to move. And it's a little bit of of crowd control as well, to be honest. And then helping if they're if we're having a special event, helping them set up. And then at the NetSuite Open, pretty much the same thing. I'm mostly operations and facility and just the general area of spectators is most of my role. And then just last year, as I mentioned, did two sessions of MCing at the Tournament of Champions, which was amazing, incredible experience. I can definitely empathize with the body of work that goes on at all these events, having literally and figuratively worn every hat at an event, just everything from 
being a, a volunteer all the way to operations and running it and so much work that goes on. And I feel like they're a labor of love and also uh, there, there's an element of being a glutton for punishment. At least that's how I experience it. And I exactly. wonder, yeah, I wonder, do you get a lot of energy from that or how do you feel when you're part of those event teams? Connor, I like live for this stuff. I, it is, I'm on the biggest high possible. You're working crazy hours and you're on your feet nonstop. I still remember the first time I did it, I had to go home and soak my feet in Epsom salt because they hurt so much after every night of the tournament champions. Obviously, because you're in Grand Central, it's hard floors that you're standing on the entire time and you're just running back and forth. And if there's an issue, you obviously want to do a good job because you're working. John Nimick is an amazing person and I respect and honor everything that he's done for squash. And so you're just trying to do the best possible uh, thing you can for him. And obviously the experience of the people. And I just, it's so thrilling. Two things based on what you just said. My event prepper hack is every day I'd go to the US Open or any event and I'm bringing at least two to three pairs of shoes and two to three pairs of socks and, and switching them out every four to six hours. You're 100% right. Like it's very taxing. There's a lot of standing and a lot of the number of steps you get in a day is is a lot like 14,000 or I've had, I think my peak was 25,000. So it was a lot. But you mentioned John Nimick and he's such a titan in the sport and also like you worn so many hats and done them so well mm -hmm. and has done, been at the, the cutting edge of promoting squash and, and helping the growth of squash. So he's a tremendous man. Yeah, I mean, just to be able to learn from him and to see the way that he works has been an incredible experience, and I'm really lucky. So one of the topics we were talking about before we get on the call relates to what we call the Squash Network. And mm -hmm. it's interesting, especially from you and your background coming from South Africa, and essentially, I said this on the pre-calls, well, you've broken into the inner circle, and I'm not sure <laughs> you look at it or think of it that way. Because that means you're on the inner circle. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love for you to just talk about what the Squash Network means to you. Absolutely. I've had so many conversations with people in the Squash Network and just trying to figure out how can we show people just how amazing this network of people really is and how do we get more people involved within the Squash Network. And to me, I think about just from where I started back in South Africa, I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined that I would end up in the United States. And I think that dream really came into effect once Mark Allen, who is now the head coach at the University of Virginia, moved to South Africa and actually became the head pro at the club that I was playing at. And so he was the one that pretty much planted the seed in my mind to say, hey, there's a world out there that you could really benefit from and take advantage of. And do you everything, remember that moment? I think I do. I think I, I remember us sitting upstairs at the Western Province Cricket Club with my dad and with Mark and Mark saying that we should start looking at universities in the United States because college squash is so big there. And I think I was about I think I was 15 or 16 years old. And at that time, I had just won the under 16 South African National Championships. And I was a really good student. And so Mark was the combination of academics. And then of course, your athletic ability is a really great combination and something that universities in the United States look at. And that conversation, we sat down upstairs and had that conversation with my dad and myself and Mark. And that was like the start of everything. 
And obviously everything has moved forward till then. And then like a year later, Pope Prokop came to South Africa with her family and I met them because they knew Mark really well. I met them at my club as well, started playing with Hope and then obviously Hope went to Harvard. So she told me all about the college squash scene and they were pretty much my guardians when I first came to the United States and I obviously went to Trinity College. And so I would spend spring break with them. I spent Thanksgiving with them and it all just started because of that connection back in South Africa and then this whole world of the squash network opened up to me. I'm curious, I can imagine you being, like you said, 15 or 16 years old, you hear about this. And what were your impressions of the United States? What image was going through your head about that? Of what might that look like if I went to college in the United States and played squash? I grew up watching, and I come from a pretty athletic family, I grew up watching the Olympic Games every four years and just seeing how dominant the United States was and still is. And I knew that there was a life out there where I was going to be supported. I was going to be able to play and train with the best people possibly in the world. I didn't know at that time what Trinity College was going to be like, but I obviously knew that a life in the U.S. was going to be larger than life and the opportunities that I would have access to would have been like out of my wildest dreams. I would never have had the opportunities. And I knew that at the time back in South Africa. So I was super excited. I had admired everything about the sporting world in the US. And obviously there have been times where we saw some of the top athletes in the country, not just squash, but for other sports, swimming, whatever it might be, moving to the US to pursue those opportunities for training and would then obviously come back and represent their country. So I knew that I was gonna get this really high performance elite experience and the beauty of it too was that I was going to be able to combine a great education as well, which is possible in South Africa, but I just think that the the opportunities are potentially, and definitely the funding is limited compared to what it is in the United States. So I'm curious, you're deciding to potentially come to United States and now you know what that experience is like, but if you were to explain or what it would be like to potentially pursue college and squash during that period, what would you say are the differences? Yeah, I think one of the biggest differences between, let's say, college squash in the US and being an athlete in college in the in South Africa is a obviously funding the opportunities that you get presented in the US, you get your gear, your travel is paid for obviously all through tuition, your your coaching, you're never having to pay any extra expenses. Whereas in South Africa, that's not the case. If you decide to be on a team, Mm. you're probably you're paying for almost every travel that you're going on uniforms, all that stuff. And then it's not as robust as the United States. There are like 60 something teams that play college squash. And so you are competing all over the country against those teams. There's really only a handful of universities that have squash as part of their their curriculum and their extracurricular activities and those teams they do go on and play in what is called a national championship but it's a very small much smaller division it's the squash is good it is really good because south african squash has drastically improved but it's not as i would say as robust as it might be in the u.s so you've made the decision to go pursue uh, Squash American. You're going to Trinity. Tell me, what are you looking forward to there? And what are you nervous about? I'll start with what I was nervous about because <laughs> that's probably the uh, the most obvious one. First of all, I had no idea where I was going to fit in on the ladder. And I was really afraid that I wasn't going to meet 
expectations. I stepped in and I was not being recruited to be the number one, two, or three. I was being recruited to be that seven, eight, nine and a really solid seven, eight, nine. And I just wanted to do the best I possibly could. And I was so afraid that wasn't going to happen. And I will tell you like I, so I was a January recruit because in South Africa, your academic year goes from January till December. And then I didn't want to wait like eight months before I started college and Trinity obviously really wonderfully allowed me to come in January. So I was thrown right into it. I'd never seen snow. Uh, it was my first time. I think it snowed like the second day I arrived. I ran outside, had all my friends take photos of me. I was, <laughs> I was that girl. And obviously being in a new country was overwhelming. First time really away from home for, for that long. And then I think I had practiced maybe two or three times with the girls on the team. And that weekend I played my first match and I could not stop shaking. I was so afraid. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I ended up winning the match, but it was like three days of getting myself back into it. And boom, you're thrown right into it. But I was so lucky to be surrounded by an incredible group of girls and wonderful coaches. And I really, they made it seem they made the transition easier than it probably would have been, I think, if I was somewhere else. And I was really lucky that the assistant coach, Joanne Schickerling, she was actually South African. So she made me feel like I was at home. And that was a, a really great experience having her there my first year as well. Your nerves, and this happens a lot of times in life and in performing. And was there anything that you did, you put work in to help overcome that? Or how did you tackle your nervous? Yeah, I don't think I ever... I don't think I ever overcame it, to be perfectly honest. I suffered a lot from performance anxiety, which was a really difficult thing to go through. And I am so grateful that one of our assistant coaches, who was also a psychologist here, Randy Lee, I became really close with him and I would see him pretty much on a weekly basis where I would just go to his office. I would have somewhat of a counseling uh, session with him, just talk through anything and everything that was happening in my life. And he introduced me to visualization and a little bit of meditation as well. And so trying to incorporate that into my routine was really helpful. And especially as I was preparing for those bigger matches, I don't think I ever got over the anxiety side of things, which was detrimental, I think, to my overall performance. But I certainly, once I found visualization and meditation, I certainly became a lot calmer stepping into a match. And then it was just a matter of how well I was going to be able to control that within a match. But I, a lot of credit to Randy Lee, who spent a lot of time working with me on that. And it's all about confidence too. So developing confidence, playing better, it all comes and, and creates this perfect little package that you're trying to get to every single performance and every single match. And some days it's better than others. Completely agree. And I think that what I've enjoyed about sports is, is having those different avenues to pursue, right? There's, mm -hmm. I need to get more physically fit. Therefore, I need a strength trainer. I need to improve my skills and I need someone who's a, a really good squash coach for that. And then there's also, like you said, the performance and finding someone that can help unlock that is really the key. And if you look at the professionals, they're all almost equivalently or equal fitness with some deviations. So it's really whoever can put it together mentally is the differentiator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So going back to the Squash Network, and you have been able to now break in 
essentially to commentating an MC. And so how did walk us through how that came to be? Sure. I'll, I'll start with the commentating a couple of years ago. Again, this was a network kind of situation where someone, I can't remember who it was, but someone knew Paul Johnson and basically texted him when he was commentating at the tournament of champions and asked if I could be in the booth just to observe and see what was happening. And I ended up going, I think it it was possibly my junior or senior year of college. And I ended up going to the tournament of champions. I bought like a $15 bus ticket on Peter Pan bus to get myself to New York city from Hartford, Connecticut. And ended up just sitting there and observing and and watching. And so that was my first real sort of, I would say, professional viewing of what it takes to do this. I had gotten into like live emceeing at Trinity where I would be like the announcer for baseball games, soccer games. So basically I was like introducing the players at the beginning. And if someone scored a goal, be like, number 13, just scored a goal and say their name. And so I fell in love with doing that. And it was a great way for me to make some pocket money on the side as well. And then it was my first year after I graduated where I was a volunteer assistant coach for Trinity College and the national championships were at that time going to be streamed on squash TV. And so for the final, I asked if I could step into the booth because I was going to be with Simon Park and I stepped in and just absolutely loved it and had a great experience. And I then entered the Can You Commentate competition, which was really funny because I, one of my players entered it as well. And so like coach against the players, we were uh, competing for votes and everything. That was an interesting experience, but shout out to Lou Alpert, who put up a good fight there. And so I ended up winning that and got to commentate at the US Open with Joey Barrington. And I guess US Squash just really liked it and had started then thinking about possibly doing commentary for like college nationals, college individuals, US Junior Open, US Nationals, and the adult, the junior nationals, and then the adult nationals. And so they asked me if I would be willing to start doing this. And I was like, yeah, of course. And so I, yeah, I've never looked back and I've just been so grateful at the opportunities that I've gotten. Obviously, I also, Mark Allen, hired me to do the World Masters in Charlottesville, which was another amazing experience. And I also, at that time, did some emceeing at the World Masters too. And I also did emceeing at the US Junior Open. And then the network, again, just because of like the relationships I've built with John Nimick and then Will Carlin as well, who I've like admired from the sidelines ever since I started working at the Tournament of Champions. John Nimick then emailed me, I think it was, yeah, last year, just before the tournament said, hey, there's an opportunity here. We would love for you to, because Jenny Dunkoff at the time and Will Carlin had to go to an event while two sessions were happening. And so John was wonderful enough to give me that opportunity. And I think I did a pretty good job. I hope I did a pretty good job, but it was, that was my shot. Like I, I have to make sure that I'm doing this really well. And for some reason, like performance anxiety doesn't set in when I'm up on a stage or I'm up on a court emceeing or, or commentating. Me, who's not comfortable public speaking, and I, I've had to work at it, just a, like I had to work at my squash, but why do you think there was that difference for you where performing in squash, you, you were trying to overcome performance anxiety there, but then nothing on court when you're speaking? I, I do get nervous, no doubt about it. And I think that's 
I think the thrill of that is so exciting to me. And I will say this fun fact, I majored in theater in college and I've been doing theater since I was probably, probably about eight years old. And I think just the idea and for me, like the process of potentially becoming someone else when you're on stage Mm. is something that I've now translated into the emceeing as well. I just turn into a different person and I forget that people are looking at me, Chanel, as like just the person that's off court that everyone knows. And I'm like, I'm in a role. Like my role is the emcee of this event. My role is to include people and make them feel like they're a part of this experience, not just from their seats, but like they're actually on the court with me and they're getting to know the players. And so I feel like I put on a different role when I'm doing emceeing. Whereas when I'm playing squash, I feel like it's just me. There's Mm. no, there's all the layers have been struck down. It's just me. And I think that I have a hard time separating that from some of the other things that I do. I'm familiar with squash in terms of I have a warm-up routine. I know how to prepare Mm -hmm. one day before, a week before, six weeks before. What do you do to then prepare for either commentating or being the MC? Preparation is everything. And like you just said, Connor, like you have a routine for when you're preparing for a tournament or when you're getting ready for practice, that routine pretty much stays the same and you're getting yourself mentally, physically in the right mindset to compete. And I do a similar thing like that for my commentating and emceeing. I'm reading up about all the players. I have Google Docs and Google Sheets open. I know exactly when they last had their appearance, how many matches they've won there. And sometimes you don't get a lot of time to prepare. And especially when you're at the US Junior Open, because you don't really know those players as much as you would know the professional players because there's 120 people in a draw and at any given time you could be commentating someone that you know is like u11 and has played one tournament and preparation is really important to me and i want to know as much about the players as i possibly can even if there's limited information on them and then warm-ups are really important Obviously, I want to stay hydrated, lots and lots of water. I have my snacks. I know when I'm able, sometimes you're not able to eat at all because you're just going back to back. And so if there's someone, if my husband's around or there's someone else, I'd be like texting, be like, go and get me food, please. Because you only have five or 10 minutes in between each game. And sometimes you can be there from 8 a.m. in the morning all the way through until 8 p.m. at night. So knowing and having that routine of warming your voice up, drinking lots of water, making sure that you're feeling yourself as well and uh, you want to keep it fresh too there's nothing worse than listening to someone who is monotone and gets boring because no matter how boring the squash might be you have to find a way to make it entertaining and I think Richard Millman and I have found a really good relationship behind the mic where we're able to bring that live commentary live action to games that otherwise people might not have tuned into if that makes sense Mm-hmm. Of course. And I think you answered some of this, but I just want to make sure as you were talking, these occur to me. So I just want to ask them, what challenges were you prepared for in doing that? And then what challenges were you not prepared for that you learned after the fact of commentating or, and or being the MC? I think the challenges that I was prepared for is obviously long hours. You have to you're working on trying to educate people about the game and trying to understand that not everyone knows as much as you think they do. And I think I knew that, but I also learned it along the way from feedback that we got. What I wasn't prepared for 
and maybe I should have been, but this is my fault, is I was addicted to reading the comments on the side of the YouTube channel as it was happening. And I was like, Chanel, you need to stop doing that. And I, some of it was really positive and amazing. And then others was like, can these commentators please just shut up? And I was like, oh my gosh, people hate me. Like all of a sudden, I didn't know how people were going to react. I didn't know who was going to be tuning in. I didn't even know if people really cared that we were doing this, but people did. And some people like gave us great feedback and others it was like one or two or three comments that you get fixated on and it's i never want to do this again (laughs) so building building that outer layer and that shell and it has been a really good thing for me to learn how to do especially when you're someone that's i do sometimes care what others think of me and i always want to do the best job i possibly can but i've learned that you can't please everyone and some people are going to find fault in absolutely everything that you do Completely agree. When I would be running events, we get a lot of real-time feedback. We also get after-the-fact feedback. And I wish I had known this. It's I only learned it about within the past two years that if we get, say, five positive feedbacks, we're just like, oh, we feel great. That's great. But we get one negative feedback, and that's equivalent to the five positive. Mm -hmm. We react much more strongly to bad things happening. So I was like, okay, that would have helped me because I would walk away from pouring an event just that I spent so much time on and was so exhausting. And then just one comment that was above the norm. And I would walk away the entire weekend feeling useless. So it was hard. You're also just tired. So yeah. <laughs> that's, you're going <laughs> to, exhaustion is a thing and you can't always shake them off. So you could shake off a bunch of stuff, but that was hard. But like you said, it's also can be the rewarding factor. And it's, it really elevates by doing that with US squash and the streaming, it just elevates the, the game and the sport overall. And you can see squash, which has been developing for so many years, is that's a really huge mark to have it go to that level. So it's, it's really great that you and Richard are doing that because it truly elevates the experience for everyone. I'm really glad to hear that. And I we're so lucky to be doing this. And I'm really proud of the work that we've done. And it's been a great experience working with Richard too. I learned so much from him and things that he's saying. And I'm like, oh, that's a great way of saying that. I'm going to take that home with me. And this player that is struggling with that concept, I'm going to say it in this way and see how that they react to it. And, and as a coach, I do think I have gotten better because of the commentating that I've been doing. You mentioned Richard and he's a, another just titan in the mm-hmm. sport and watching him play is remarkable. It's just he does things that I've never that very few people I've ever seen done on a squash court. His touch, the way he moves. So he's a master of the sport on court, but then his ability to be able to communicate it and break it down is another skill that he's completely mastered. So I would completely echo what you said. Absolutely. And again, that's the squash network. Like I would never have probably been or able to cross that many paths with Richard if it wasn't for commentating and how that got us together and working together. And that's just the beauty and and the power of the network that we're all a part of. So a while back, were you wondering who our sponsor is? Well, the mystery is over. It's Pro Sport LED. Now for a new mystery. What do they do? The innovators at Pro Sport LED develop custom solutions for each individual sport based on photometric studies, as well as understanding the needs of all people involved in the sport, from amateur players to the professionals, but also from the spectators to the facilities team taking care of the building. They'll develop the most technologically advanced LED lights. 
What's also great about this advanced LED technology is it takes the standard features but then goes further by addressing three more problems that competitors don't. They cure any glare issues or being blinded by the lights while playing your chosen sport. Each individual slim profile fixture can be Wi-Fi enabled so you can control the lights from the phone in your pocket. And they are perfect for the digital first media approach by providing 4K quality and consistency for any film or photography needs. Go beyond standard basic lighting. Pro Sport LED has you covered. Your trusted source for sports facility lighting with advanced LED technology. These lights are the perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but also easy to retrofit into existing buildings, likely saving you money in the long run. Find out more info by going to squashradio.com LED. We think they're great and so will you. There was another topic I wanted to bring up because I, I, I don't know as much about this with you and your background, and it's rowing. So tell me, you and doing crew, give me the story. What's the background? Oh, it's the best story ever. So I, my sophomore year of college, I ended up taking a fitness class. So you were able to do 0.25 credits worth of fitness classes. And it was just a way to keep people like healthy and engaged. It was like a health and wellness kind of situation. And I was trying to graduate from Trinity early. So I was trying to graduate in three and a half years. So I ended up having to take 5.75 credits every semester in order to do that. And so obviously you need 0.25 credits to make up that 5.75. And so I ended up taking a fitness class with the rowing coach at the time. And our last session of the semester, he put us on the ERGs. And he made us, he taught us the technique and all that stuff. And he made us row and I'm strong. So I apparently pulled really great numbers, which I had no idea what that meant at the time. And he asked me if I had ever rowed and would consider joining the team. And at that time, I also played field hockey for Trinity. So I was like, absolutely not. Like I'm exhausted. I've just done field hockey, squash, and spring is now my time to just take a little bit of a break. And so I ended up then getting cold. It was about two weeks before a really big race for the team. I think it was the ECACs, which meant that they had to. So it was like the Eastern Conference Athletic, something like that. And they had to do really well in order to then get a bid for NCAAs. One of the girls in the novice boat ended up getting really badly injured. And so they were down a rower and needed someone to fill in that spot. And they called me, the two rowing coaches called me into the office and was like, listen here, like, we know you said you didn't want to do this, but we need you. And I'm really bad at saying no. So I was like, yeah, fine, I'll do it. I'm in. (laughs) And And is this a varsity sport? This is a varsity sport. We won. So so I was like, okay, let's go. Let's do it. I'm athletic and I played five different sports growing up in South Africa. So I- And what time of year is this? So this is March now march april yeah so squash season like had literally just ended and so i yeah it was probably april because i think they had just come back from spring break so april so i was like okay i'm in and i learned how to row in two weeks and raced in a full-on like really important race which we actually ended up winning the overall thing and the team got a, a direct bid for the national championships the ncaa's and i just fell in love with the sport. I fell in love with the people, the team, the coaches, everything about it was like, this is my sport. This is what I like. 
beyond squash, I love being pushed. I love working hard. The mental aspect of just pushing yourself beyond anything you could ever imagine and then having other people to do it with was a beautiful mixture of, of everything that I love. And so I ended up sticking with the sport. And then my junior year, the team won the national championships for the first time. And that was an unbelievable experience. And then my following year, my boat ended up coming first at the NCAAs and winning the national championship for the first boat. And I rode in a really great sea, a road seven seat, which for those that don't know, that's just behind the stroke seat. And you really help guide the crew to row in sync. And I got to row at the head of the Charles as the stroke in a four. So I basically won back to back part of a national championship crew. And it was just something that I never would have ever experienced if I hadn't said yes. Wow. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> what, I, I got to ask, what was the number that you were pulling in that health oh, class? I can't remember. I'm going to have to text my coach at some point and ask him. But yeah, I, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure most novices, I think like at the average level when they're first learning how to row on an erg. So the testing that you do for a test for rowing for like fitness is a 2K on the erg. And so like top Olympic athletes break are like six minutes and 30 seconds. It's unbelievable how fast they go. But like really low level and, and intra level novices, I would say their goal is to break eight minutes. And I think in my first time probably had a seven minute and 40 seconds, which was like pretty good for someone that had never stepped on an erg. And then obviously just got better and better and stronger as we went. But I think it was my ability to pick up the sport on the water so quickly that made me a good mm. rower. It wasn't necessarily my erg times. The fact that I was able to pick up the sport and I was really coachable and just loved being on the water and, and rowing with my teammates, I think is, is what allowed me. What was your strength on the water then? Again, the coachability and crew is something that if everyone has to be in sync from every little movement that you possibly make, you have to do it in time with the person in front of you and the person behind you. So if at any point, any part of this, the stroke is out of sync, you are going to lose time and you're going to go slower. And so my ability to follow and be able to allow the people behind me to also see what was happening in front of them because obviously you have someone in front of you and so you have to translate everything that's happening in front of you to the people behind you and the ability to do that and then once the blade was in the water I was able to generate really good power and, and strength through the water and I can't believe I ever did that it feels like a lifetime ago but I'm so proud that I was a part of Trinity crew and my incredible teammates and coaches wow so you ended up playing three sports at Trinity yes yeah, so I only did field hockey for one season and then I decided that, that was not right for me and, and that I was missing out on a lot of squash specific training in the preseason and so I ended up then not quitting field hockey sticking obviously with squash and then picking up crew in the spring and then my senior year I did crew in the fall squash in the winter and then crew in the spring again. So speaking of squash and rowing, there's another squash player out there who in an interview was being asked, you're on a desert island, what's the one workout equipment that you bring with you to stay in shape? And it was an erg machine or the rower. And the squash player, do you want to take a guess Cole at who Cole. it was? Oh. No. Huge acne. What? No way. Yeah. So I, I listened to another podcast. Uh, it's the Tim Ferriss podcast and so he's being interviewed i was really i was hoping it's got to be a squash court but 
you know, he picked a, a rowing machine and I would concur. It is a great way to get in shape. And I have one at my house and I love it. I need to work on my stroke in times, but it's a fantastic way. Similar to squash where in such a short period of time, you can be very exhausted. And that's absolutely a, you're, you graduate from Trinity. You then move into a different role and that is at the Hill School. And you're now, I know you're working in advancement, but also you're the director of squash there. And what I'm curious about is your observations of what's different about juniors playing squash in the United States and your experience or observations about juniors playing squash in South Africa. I think what I'm going to say is a little different because I obviously played junior squash in South Africa. I didn't play junior squash in the US, so I'm observing it from the outside. And I absolutely loved my junior experience in South Africa. And one thing that is so different from the two is this idea of league. So league play is huge in South Africa. And I grew up playing men's league and women's league on, on a weekly basis. You're playing against 65-year-old men, sometimes 80-year-old men, sometimes 27-year-old men. And they're just like, hitting the ball in every angle possible. And I think that exposure and getting that side of the game was really important for my development. I would say, unfortunately, there weren't that many girls that were playing squash in South Africa during the time, but I was really lucky that the number one in South Africa, and she's now a, a professional player, Alex Fuller, was in my same age group and we played at the same club. And Mark Allen was both our coaches. I was really lucky to have that exposure to her as well. Every tournament, we would be in the finals against each other for juniors in Cape Town. And I never beat her, obviously, but it was just like having that access was really great to me. And then also you're playing women's league as well. And there are some really talented women in South Africa and, and in Cape Town, especially where you're playing women's league and then you're playing school league. So there would be days where I would go from having school squash practice or playing a school match. And I went to an all girls school. And so our team was pretty strong. So we played against some of the boys schools as well. So I would play boys and girls. And then I would go and maybe have a session with Mark Allen, a private lesson with Mark or a group lesson with him. And then I would go and play women's league or men's league that night. That's how your days would go. And I wow. also was a multi-sport athlete. So I played field hockey, water polo, swimming. I played tennis as well. And so you could be going from one sport to the next. And that development certainly helped my squash ability as well. And that's really encouraged in South Africa is to play multiple sports. The biggest difference here in the US is obviously league is... Just quickly, I'm curious. So just what does that look like on a week basis? Because how many matches are you playing in a day? That sounds like a, a lot of traveling. Walk me through what a week of that looks yeah, like. Yeah, so we usually had for squash, we usually had women's league on a Monday night. So that would be probably from 7.30 till 9.30 and depending on and PM, sorry, PM. PM. Yeah. And then okay. before that, it would be the winter. And so I would have probably field hockey practice before that and or squash practice. Some days like on a Monday, Day, I would usually have squash practice at school for about 45 minutes. Then I would run to hockey practice and I'd have field hockey practice for probably an hour and a half. And then I would go and play league that night. And then on Wednesdays, we had men's league. So I would play men's league for my club. And that again would be from like 7.30 to 9.30 kind of time slot. And on a Friday, we would have school matches. So I would play obviously against other schools for my school team. and. 
in between every single one of those days, I think I had about two, yeah, I think I had two private lessons with Mark a week. And then I played, I had school practice. And I also would sometimes play with some of the boys at other schools. And we would just have a round robin kind of situation, or we play King of the Court or whatever it was. And then I would obviously have school squash two or three times a week as well. And then that's all interspersed with field hockey that I played in the winter too. That sounds extremely full. Is that how you experienced it? It was, but I'm a firm believer that made me a better athlete and it allowed me to know how to manage my time. I obviously had to find ways to get my schoolwork done as well. I went to a really good high school. So uh, I went to Herschel Girls in Cape Town, which is, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go there, which is a private girls school. And I'm really grateful for that experience. And so it was a high academic school as well. And so you had to, you pretty much had to succeed in everything you did. And that was the mindset. And I just loved that atmosphere that I was in. And I was surrounded by people that were doing the same thing. And they, we were all doing that and we were all doing it to get better. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved it. I, I have such great memories. I was going to ask, was that something that you were embracing or did you feel like this is too much? And if I could stop one, I but you didn't know what. And so you're just going with the flow or were you embracing it? There was a time I definitely embraced it. I embraced it too much. <laughs> Probably um, there was a time where Mark had to have a serious conversation with me and, and my dad, you're going to plateau and you're going to give something up. Like something has to go. And I had a really, really tough time with that just because because I loved everything I did from one thing to the next. And it's sort of like, sure. I became like a jack of all traits and I never actually became like the best thing. Um, but I just loved doing that. And it was, it was probably my 11th grade where Mark and my dad and my mom too. And they were like, look, you, you can't keep doing this. You're not going to get to where you need to be if you're going to play every sport under the sun and do everything you need to start thinking about specializing. So I ended up not going to a number of school question yeah, there. Go ahead. So that was your mom giving that advice saying you're not going to get to where you want to get to. And but what did that mean? What was she trying to say? And what did that mean to you? You know, it wasn't just my mom. It was a conversation amongst, I would say, all of us, my mom, my dad, uh, Mark as mm -hmm. well. And I think I think it was a hard time realizing that I could be so much better if I had decided to possibly specialize a little bit sooner. And I was good, but that was it. Like I wasn't the best. And in order to be the best, I think I would have had to specialize much sooner. And that was a hard, that was sometimes a hard concept for myself. And I think for my mom and my dad to realize that, wow, like you do have the potential to be the best at something, but you're choosing to be good at everything. And mm -hmm. at that time, you're like, yeah, because I'm able to be good at everything and I'm able to really love and enjoy everything I do. But then you keep wondering, you keep thinking like, huh, I wonder how much better I could really be if I'm good while still doing everything. How much better could I really be if I specialized? Sure. That deeply resonates with me. And at my high school, we were forced to play multiple sports. I had soccer and I had tennis. And I had the winter sport had always been, I tried wrestling, basketball, and, and then there was this thing called squash in my high school. And so I tried that. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting the following year after I was like, oh, I really like this. And I wasn't really performing at the level I wanted on the soccer team. So similar to you, I was like, well, or sorry, opposite, potentially opposite. I was like, well, let me go here because this is new and I let me try and get better. And they wouldn't let me. And I, I wonder the same thing, what if, but I'm also very glad that 
I continued all three. Yeah. And in college, then I quote focused on squash. But then <laughs> in retrospect, it wasn't until I graduated college and then it became my career that then I actually got better. Because yeah. I wasn't putting in, I wasn't listening fully to the coaches because you could get by. Yeah. Doing So anyway, back to you have a full plate and you're trying to balance it. I think I did a good job of balancing it, really enjoying it. And honestly, I have no regrets. And it allowed me to get to Trinity. It allowed me to have a, a pretty okay college career, you know, squash wise. I, again, like I probably could have done so much better, uh, but maybe who knows, maybe I, I reached my peak. And I, I do think I fell out of love for the game a little bit when I was in college and had to work really hard to get it back. And I do think that maybe if I had specialized sooner, who knows, maybe I would have ended up hating squash and never even have made it to the US. And so there were a series of events and I don't regret doing everything I did. Yeah, same here. So that gives a really good picture of your experience in South Africa. And now going to your observations and just let's start at a high level. If you had to just bullet point out some of the observations and I think to give a full picture, hey, here's what I think the positives are in the United States and here are the areas for improvement, let's say. The high level, there's so many opportunities to play. There's so many tournaments, there's so many regional events, the national championships, there's incredible school squash. I mean, the level of high school squash in the United States is amazing. And so seeing that high level view, observing it and being a part of it has been a really exciting journey so far. So that would be sort of my high level view of U.S. squash. I think the one thing that is very, very different is that it's a really expensive sport here in the U.S. And mm -hmm. that access is not there for everyone just yet. And I think that sometimes, you know, sometimes people do it for the wrong reasons. And other times, pe those people that are doing it because they just love it, there is an opportunity to play the game. And more so than I think in other places. And there's also that global network that's now starting in the US as well, because there's so many coaches that are coming to the US from all over the world. So the access you're getting to different opinions, ideas, different ways of playing the game and a different strategy, a different view of observing and, and seeing the game, I think is really beneficial for the development of players. And again, that, that high level, that high intensity that we're seeing and being produced by some of the coaches and some of the high teams, you know, some of the academies as well is a really positive place for squash to be in right now. Completely agree. The talent pool of coaching mm -hmm. here in the United States is absolutely remarkable. And we have the majority of high level coaches here in the United States that are available worldwide, yeah. I would say. I agree. And another thing, and you're a part of this, is I think Trinity has distinguished itself, certainly on court, with the number of national championships that it has garnered mm -hmm. and the talent of the players coming over. But the story that hasn't been fully flushed out or shared as much is what I would call the Trinity effect. <laughs> and that is the number of then that same talent of players on court then coming, staying in the United States. Think of all the coaches in the various roles within the sport and also how they're participating in the sport. So it's a pretty amazing story. And that is being told in doses, so to speak, or individual level, but not as a book just yet. But it's a really remarkable story. 
Absolutely. And I, and I do think that that is the, just a deep rooted love for the game that continues beyond, you know, we all come from so many different countries where that is what it is. You know, it, you play the game because you absolutely love it and, and it's, it's hard work. And, but you also get the exposure to different styles of play. As I mentioned, like I was like a 14 year old kid playing against full grown adults, you know, men or women there. And I was playing against boys all the time. I was playing against girls, you know, there was no separation. Um, and you, you just, you played, you played because you wanted to play and you trained hard and all that stuff. And I think that is something that we, once we graduate, we try and create that same effect, no matter where we end up going. You know, I'm trying to create that effect here with my team at Hill. I'm trying to create that deep rooted love for the game. And you are not only trying to get something from the game, but you're trying to give something back to the game. Don't don't just take, and that's what I tell yeah. my players too, is like, don't just take, give back to it as well. Look at what squash has been able to provide you and find a way to give back to the sport. Completely agree. And I think it can even be more rewarding giving. Mm -hmm. I was in my role when I was at US Squash, and I think this was under director of Team USA hat. I was talking to a parent about participating in one of the junior national teams events. And I forget w why it was, but it was like, who else is on the team? No, I apologize. This was a high school team championship. And the player was of this high level caliber. And so we were talking about basically the options on the table to participate at a high school level. And she was conveying that this boy is so much better than the rest of the teammates where they really don't challenge him. And I just put out, now he gets an opportunity to be a leader mm -hmm. and share what he's learned and to make his teammates better. So to your point, what are you giving back? Not about just what you're getting. Right. And I will say, I will say too, you know, I have to be perfectly honest, you know, for some of us and especially for me, squash was my ticket to be able to stay in the U.S. And it has allowed me to, you know, I'm not a citizen here. It has allowed me to have a work visa and it's, again, it, it's become so much more than just a game play. It, it's become pretty much who I am and I, I'm indebted to it. One one of the topics I also wanted to touch on was more about your role as director of squash at the Hill School, and this kind of segues uh, from what you were just talking about. But so, what are the principles then that you're trying to impart on your players there? As I just mentioned, the most important thing for me is know why you're playing and don't just play it for the wins and the losses. Find that real love for the game that exists and share it with someone else and invite people to come and, and play. One thing is like, this is an inclusive community. I want every single person, my goal as when I came in was like, every single person at Hill, I want them to have picked up a squash racket before they graduate. Have I achieved that goal? No, definitely not. But that's something, you know, and that's something that I install in my players is like, play with people. If you see someone on court and they're, they're struggling or they're not sure what to do, like be the leader and jump on court with them and show them how to do it. The other things that I try and impart on my, on my players is understand the game from an outside perspective. So if I, you need to also be able to coach it. So I, my players to help me, you know, with our community program, with the middle school program, I want them to learn how to articulate what it is that they're doing. And so that they can then share their knowledge with other people. 
And then just respect and kindness is absolutely everything that we would want in a team. You do not have to be best friends with each other. I'm not trying to have everyone be best friends because sometimes that doesn't happen. You know, different dynamics, different personalities, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, there is a mutual respect that you are going to do or die on the court next to you for your teammates. And your teammate, when you are practicing, you're going to be a great practice partner for someone else. I don't care if they are your biggest challenge competitor on the team and you're fighting for a spot, you are going to be, or they're number nine and you're number one, you are going to be great practice partners, no matter who you're on court with. Someone wants to train with you and that's the person you need to be the best possible training partner. And then when it comes to match day or, or tournament player, you set everything else aside and you and your team come first. And you are doing this for not only yourself, because I do think there does have to be an element for you doing it for yourself. But if you can't find it in you, then you have to continue to do it for the people that are next to you and know that the person next to you is going to be doing it for the for you and the person to them. And it's sort of a trickle effect. And at the end of the day, like that's what matters most. Once you arrive at the courts, any disagreements or arguments or whatever happened with any of your teammates before that needs to be put aside because right now we're, we're getting down to business and you need to be able to play and compete for the people that are next to you. Wow, that, that is very robust answer. And I love it because it feels both aspirational, but also very concrete and practical in terms of how to implement it. And how'd you come about with those principles? You must have given it some thought in terms of here's what I'm going to do. And how did that come about for you? I think the biggest thing has just been the teams that I've been on for so many years and, and what worked and what didn't work. Uh, I mm-hmm. think ob- observation and really looking at other coaches and how they're coaching styles. And again, you know, I, I can't speak enough good things about Mark Allen and, and what he's done, not only for me, but obviously for UVA, the coaches at Trinity, Paul Asiante, Wendy Bartlett. I've seen the way when things go well beyond just mm-hmm. the squash, if that makes sense. You know, I've seen the team culture and where it needs to be in order for a team to compete well. I've also seen it the other way around, you know, where or a team culture has not been there and it's had maybe not as much of an effect on some players, but more on others. So it becomes an individualized kind of situation where someone could be really influenced by a poor team culture and others couldn't care less, you know? And so I've I've seen both ends of, of that spectrum. And ultimately I put myself in my kids' shoes. Like what would I want to get out of my, as a player, as myself, as a coach, you know, if I was from the, from their, their point of view, what am I trying to to get out of the coach, you know, what am I hoping to get from this? And, you know, we're, we're probably not the most talented team, but we are going to work hard and we're going to be there for each other. And we're going to fight till the end, no matter what. And I think just knowing what I respect the most out of other coaches and other teams is something that I've been trying to work really hard to implement at Hill. And it's, it's not perfect, Connor. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like there's some days that are really, really difficult, but we're trying. 
we're and we're working hard. But at least knowing that there's a framework and where you're trying to aim, I think is what's most important. And and it's tough on the players themselves. They we all have a lot of different things going on in our lives where we are going to perform better or not. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's like you said, I think culture matters deeply, mm-hmm. both on in teams and in business. And successful teams are the ones that embrace a, uh, that culture where and where your teammates lift you up when you're down. You know. Well, we've certainly covered a pretty wide breadth of the squash topics. And what I like to also do is just go through some uh, what I call the quick fire challenge. And it's just a series of questions I ask all guests because I never know where the answers lead. And it's really interesting. So are you ready for the quick fire? Okay, I'm ready. Mentally prepared. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we'll start off with an easy one. And just do you have a favorite movie or documentary? Favorite movie? (laughs) I'm actually a little embarrassed to say this. Favorite movie is Just Go With It. (laughs) I don't, I, wow, I don't know this one. What is this one? (laughs) It's a Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler, I think. And they go to Hawaii. Oh, it's such a speed, but I, I've probably seen it about 25 times. You know, now that you mention it, I think I might have seen it, (laughs) but. I can't recall even the premise or the plot. Oh, goodness me. I'm embarrassed that I just said that out loud. But that's okay. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to embrace it. Yeah, I like, go for it. Go for it. Now I'm going to, well, now I have to go watch it again. I like it. So the next question is, the topic is, what gets you fired up? And this can be either positively or something that, that negatively, but either way forces you to action. And it can be within squash world or outside of squash world. But what fires you up? I think I'm going to go towards a little bit of the negative side. And I would say nothing makes me more fired up and probably makes me want to work even harder and reevaluate you know, my coaching style and, and the way I'm explaining things would be when you are given instructions and someone's decided to ignore absolutely everything that has been explained or demonstrated or shown and you just refuse to listen or and to try and change things and i think that is something that has been a really difficult observation that i've had to real like take a deep look at myself in how i react within the moments you know because it's so easy for you to go like well how are you not understanding this and and it's it's like no. And I think that w- was my like immature side, maybe five, six years ago, just starting out and like all that stuff. Whereas I've had to really do some hard work and be like, okay, they're not getting this because I, I need to take responsibility. I'm not explaining it or I'm not explaining in a mm-hmm. way that they are understanding it. I still get yeah. pretty like... I don't show it as much as I probably used to, but I still get a little upset like with myself of being like, like why are they why are they not getting this? Yeah. Like <laughs> That's such an impressive level of self-awareness and I think when as I was growing up, the kind of main topic coming in was like, oh, learning disabilities mm-hmm. and why can't kids learn and we have to address that. And something uh, I heard this on a podcast uh a couple of years ago. And it's, we need to talk more about teaching disabilities. Ah, I like and that. So, yeah. And so it's like, just what you're doing there, it's, hey, you have a certain style that can work for the majority of people, but if someone's not getting it, okay, let me put that effort in to try and communicate it differently. And there's basically three different ways that we can communicate human to human, visually, written, and audio. Hmm. And for me, uh-huh written word like reading a book is really challenging like it just takes me longer but i can watch videos and absorb 
all of that very fast and I can listen to audio very fast. So it's just, if it's only presented to me in written, it's a challenge for me. Anyway, so I, I like what you said. Thank you. The next question has to do with what brings you disproportionate happiness? And this can be an activity or a, a physical thing. And I'm just going to put aside a disclaimer that naturally our friends and family bring us a lot of happiness and there's that. So we're just going to give that as a given. But then what is either a physical gadget or a thing or an activity that brings you disproportionate happiness? That's a hard question, Connor, because I would say, you know, like my family and stuff, but obviously I can't say that. Do you mean disproportionate? Like it's so, there's so much happiness or it's happiness, but it also brings you sadness. Like, what do you mean by disproportionate happiness? I'll give an example. And it's, this is an example probably dated five or six years ago, but I used to, I love iced coffee. And what would happen is as soon as iced coffee would come around time, suddenly I'm like, ugh, I was really excited for it, but also it costs a lot. And so I figured out a way to do it at home. And it was this get this device that was just made out of glass and it cost me $20. So like that $20 then brought me just disproportionate amount of happiness because it provided my iced coffee <laughs> on a daily basis. And so I was like, and it could be something else. Like I love yoga or that kind of stuff. But so th that can, I mean, like you're surprised that such a small thing that then brings you just tremendous amount of happiness. I'm going to say my cats. And the reason I'm going to say that is because I love animals, but I was never someone that was like, oh, I really want to be a pet owner. I, I you know, there's, there's people that were like born to do that and they want thousands of dogs and they'll whatever. But we ended up finding these two kittens along the side of the road. And I don't think I've ever been this happy, obviously, besides my wedding day and my, and my husband, <laughs> that aside, uh, having these, these two cats with me. And especially during COVID times, like there, there are days where they drive me insane. And it, I'm like, this must be what it was like having a kid. And I'm sure mothers and, and fathers are going to hate me for saying that because it's absolutely not what it's like to having a kid. But I just love these two animals with so every fiber in my body. I know I'm asking these questions and I feel like I would struggle to answer them too. And I think depending on the time of you know, the year or everything that's going on, I would answer them differently. But this morning, because I was prepping for this and I said, gosh, if I had to answer it, I would say my dog. It's the same exact thing, everything you just say. And I know it's not a kid, but it really, it's being in charge and taking care of this other being. And it's, it is hard, but I love it. I just stare at him sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> really me too. Cute. Me too. And I, I like yeah. send an insane amount of photos to my family of my cats. <laughs> well, well, now you got to make sure to send us those photos so we can include it on the, the blog uh, post. There you go. Um, <laughs> so the next question, are you familiar with TED Talks? I am, yes. I haven't watched many okay. of them though. So here your scenario is that you're going to give a TED Talk. But the rules are, it can't be something that you're known for. And you have to go, essentially, you have to go explore a topic and then share. So it can either be something that you're not well known for that you love to share with the rest of the world, or go explore something brand new you've always wanted to do, and then share that on a TED Talk. So what would it be? Memorizing plays. Interesting. I have an insanely good memory. And I think... And this is definitely not something that I'm known for because not that there aren't that many people that know my theater background. And 
just again i can't believe i'm telling you this because this is so embarrassing but when i was like for 13 or 14 years old i like wrote out the entire script of high school musical because i had watched it so many times that i had pretty much memorized it and was able to write it out like by word and did you check it for accuracy? I did. I wish I knew where, where that was. I, I don't... How accurate Yeah, I was pretty darn accurate. I was pretty accurate. Yeah, I could... Like, Let's give it. a number here. Um, 99%? 95%? 95%. Like, wow. it, was, it, it was embarrassingly close. <laughs> and I just, like, have always had an ability to be able to... And I think that's probably why I, like, love theater so much. But, like, I loved reading plays and obviously, like, preparing for a role and just memorizing my lines and are there tricks that you you use or there um... are yeah i like to record myself so i would like i would do one of two things i would so i would put my phone on audio and i would read the lines of the other people and then i would have to then fill in my line for instance and then there's another way of doing it too where i would record my lines and just listen to them I would also write them out sometimes, like actually physically, like try and remember how many times I would, I would write them. And yeah, I just like, I just think I could share that knowledge with the world. Yeah, that'd be uh, amazing. And I have uh, so many questions on this. I'll try and limit them. But do you, does that apply towards your memory in terms of, hey, I was six years old, I was on the school playground and you can remember everything about it? There are there are moments in from my childhood that I remember so vividly that I like I can mm-hmm. see it all happening in front of my eyes. Like there was a day where I remember I was I was probably about five or six. I was playing in our in our like outside our garden. I hated being barefoot for some reason as a kid. I just hated being barefoot. I didn't like my feet being dirty, but it was pouring with rain and I went and played outside and I used a, and I was barefoot and I was like sliding in the mud, loved every minute of it. And I was playing with little sticks in the gutter and I would make the, it float like a little bo- And like stuff like that, I can mm. me- remember, like I can see everything in front of me. And then moments where like, I have no idea. Like my mom would tell me something that I did and I'd be like, oh, cool. <laughs> Thanks for t- reminding me. And then what about when you're doing recall on like text in a book? Is it in your memory or are you visualizing that page? I oh, I think it's memory. I haven't yeah, done okay. this in a while. You know, that's that like, I feel like it's a skill you probably use. Like I have some friends who mm-hmm. are insanely good at like, they'll watch a, a movie and they'll be able to like remember things from movies and recite it. Mm. I am not that good when it comes to movies, but like, I'm very good when it comes to obviously reading a play or obviously like high school musical was my thing back then. So that was something that I'd watched so many times before and yeah, just, just scripts from plays that I was in and preparing for. Very cool. I don't know if that's the answer that you would have wanted for a TED talk. You probably wanted something a little no, bit more that's... like coaching wise. <laughs> no, not at all. That's why I'm like, cause it's so curious. Like it's basically the hidden talents or passion that you're, you're into. I have a new question I'm adding in. So I'm going to test okay. it. If you were going to start your own podcast, what would it be about? I would start something, the squash network. And it would be about 
telling people how important and how wonderful the network is within our squash community and how it can how we can get something out of it but how we also need to cherish it and make sure that we include other people within this network i think it's so fascinating to hear and i just like I've actually thought about this a lot um, because I have seen how much the network has meant to me and how it has helped me in every single phase of my life. And without it, I would not be here. There's no way that I would be in the position that I'm in right now. And I want to be able to educate other people on how they can get the best out of this situation and not waste the incredible community that we have within the squash within this uh, this sport. I like it. The last question is, are there any books or podcasts? And you can answer both or neither. Are there any books or podcasts that you would recommend? So I've just gotten into true crime and mm-hmm. I am obsessed with my favorite murder. I don't know if you've, if you've <laughs> listened to it, but... I have not, I've heard doses because my wife is a super fan. She has the hat. She loves them. She's bought the book. She's, her and her sisters, it's it's a very hot topic around here. So she's full in. So that's a little bit of my, my guilty pleasure. And then I do try and listen to a lot of coaching. I would say coaching and also other experiences of of athletes and especially female athletes and coaches. And so U.S. soccer, one of the national team members and her name, I'm blanking on her name right now, but she has started a podcast and it's called Just Women's Sports. And Mm. it is, it's wonderful. Oh, it's by Kelly O'Hara. And I, I never was a soccer fan until this past World Cup where I just became the U.S. women's team's biggest fan and do a d- deep dive inside the the personalities and lives of, of these incredible athletes. And so she, it was actually recommended to me by a friend of mine who's also a, a coach and, and she works down in Atlanta. So Just Women's Sports has been an excellent just hearing about the the history of these of these athletes and it's not just the soccer team you know mm-hmm. she interviews olympic snowboarder chloe she interviews volleyball players she interviews like pretty much everyone that has reached a really high level in their sport and just hearing about their backgrounds and how they got into it has been um a fascinating journey so far i like yeah. it yeah and is this your, are you also announcing that you're going to be expanding your commentating portfolio to include women's soccer now? <laughs> Is this the big announcement? Well, U.S. women's soccer team, if you're listening to this, just know that I am, I'm available. <laughs> Crazier things have happened. You, you're now commentating on all of squash. So. Do you know what I would love um, to commentate and what I would love to do is Formula One. I love Formula One. Oh, I would love to be a BBC well, I, commentator. And and what is it about the the sport that you like? There's so much that goes on behind the scenes and so much of it is out of your control. And I have a really hard time with letting things happen just naturally. Like I like to have control over situations. You 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 have to learn quickly that there's a lot of stuff that is not in your control. And I think Formula 1 has opened my eyes to like a whole new world. Like you are so you are in control obviously because you're like driving the car, but you can't control if the car is going to overheat or break down, or you're going to go over a curb. Obviously you can control if you're going to go over, uh, if there are mechanical issues, anything like that, there's so much Mm. out, there's so many outside factors 
and just seeing that and watching it and it's only recently you know Ben has been a Formula One fanatic for years and he like just recently got me into it and I became obsessed very quickly well I feel like this is gonna have to be a cliffhanger for part two and and diving into a bunch of these topics you raise but I think that we're just gonna draw the interview to a close and because I know I could keep going uh all day <laughs> me too I told and, and I re- yeah I really appreciate your time and willingness to jump on the podcast and you have, like I said, are involved in so many aspects of the sport and contributing and giving back so much. So thank you for what you've been doing. And you're really making a huge impression on the future of youth in America for squash players. So thank you. Thank you so much, Connor. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you for what you're doing to get these stories out. Trying. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And we'll, we'll check in soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much. This was so fun. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.